Hello again, and welcome to the Mariner Podcast with me, Chris Stanmore Major. This episode is called Into the Southern Ocean, and I'm going to be talking about my experience sailing solo for the first time down below 40 degrees south, down into the Southern Ocean, a part of the world's ocean very rarely travelled by most sailors. We're going to be talking through currents, polars, the sails, uh, the Southern Ocean conveyor, the weather system that goes across the bottom of the world, experiences I had having to deal with the psychology of being offshore, particularly as it was Christmas Day, uh, some of the nature and wildlife that I saw down there, um, kelp islands off the Kogulian Islands and how to get yourself free of a half an acre of kelp that's knotted together, dealing with ice, dealing with the loss of my diesel engine, sailing through the Bass Straits, and then the conclusion of that leg, which um, had a lot of drama right into the very last 24 hours. If you're interested in any of that, get yourself suited and booted with a cup of coffee and somewhere comfy to sit. We're going on watch now. So with any entry into the Southern Ocean, the first consideration we have to have is the time of year that we're going down there. Anybody who's familiar with the story of Shackleton's escape from Antarctica will know that when they were trying to cross from Elephant Island to uh, South Georgia, they were doing that in about April or May, which is getting into a time of year in the Southern Ocean where you really don't want to be there. So underpinning everything that we're talking about now is the sure and certain knowledge that if you're going to venture into this part of the world's ocean, you need to be thinking first about, you need to be there in summer. Like, you don't want to be there at any other time. I think the thing to, to, to start to outline here initially is, why is the Southern Ocean the feared entity that it is amongst soldiers? Uh, amongst soldiers? Well, soldiers and sailors, but everybody basically. But amongst sailors, why are we so aware of the myth and the lore of the Southern Ocean? The Southern Ocean has a number of characteristics which make it um, very unique, and it has one particular piece of geography, which is Cape Horn, which is where the focus of our worst nightmares are. Let me explain why. The Southern Ocean, um, as you're looking at it below South America, as you're looking at it in the bottom of the South Atlantic, then below Cape Town, below the Indian Ocean, think of the three major pieces of land that jut down into the Southern Ocean, that's South America, Cape Town, then Australia. There isn't anything else in between. You're talking about massive tracts of ocean. Uh, the winds are being created and the tides and currents of the world are affected by the Coriolis effect, the planet spinning on its axis and setting up weather patterns which are dependent and kind of caused by that overriding effect. That means in the Southern Ocean, all of the weather systems are coming in from the west and moving to the east. Those systems have masses and masses of room to develop. A system which is crossing from Newfoundland in the North Atlantic, near where I am here in Nova Scotia and crossing over to the UK, we can understand perfectly well that it has a massive amount of time to become huge before it batters in through the western approaches off of Ireland and Cornwall and off of the corners of, of France there. And before it goes blustering into Europe, it's got time to build energy, to build velocity, to build itself into something massive. Systems which cross 
the bottom of the Atlantic across the bottom of the southern Atlantic, they have the entire width of the Atlantic to get going. Then they pass underneath the bottom of uh, South Africa, which is a narrowing of the ocean, but it's not an enormous narrowing of the ocean, and it doesn't have massive mountainous systems there which are going to really kind of box it in. Then it goes off across the bottom of the Indian Ocean. It's got the entire distance of the Indian Ocean to start building itself up once again. The next piece of landmass it hits is Australia, which again is a, a bit of a narrowing of the ocean. Um, but in terms of the systems which are way south, they don't even notice Australia, and Australia is basically flat anyway. So these things have now gone across two major oceans, and now off they go across the bottom of the Pacific. The largest uh, transit they have to do, which in and of itself would be enough to build a monster system. So these th transit all the way around the bottom of the world, getting bigger and bigger, thousands and thousands of miles of fetch. That, that is the open water that wind has access to where it can, it can work upon the water and create waves. So thousands and thousands of miles of fetch all the way across the Southern Atlantic, all the way across underneath the Indian uh, Ocean, all the way across the Pacific. It's also operating in very, very deep water. Now the thing with wave motion in water is that you're looking at a uh, circular uh, energy uh, pattern which is traveling underneath the water. If you were you know, on a little bobby boat that's not uh, about to be flipped over by a wave but just a wave pass underneath it, this is not some arching curved gray beard but just a general open ocean wave, the patch of water that you're on on your little bobbing boat, just as the wave comes it goes up and then it goes back down again. The actual molecules of the water that you're sitting on merely kind of rise and go back down again. The water is not moving across the, the world's ocean. It's not flowing. The energy is moving through the water. So this energy is operating in water that is thousands of meters deep on the whole. And it's going all the way across this thousands of miles of fetch. So we have giant waves that start to form. And also as waves start to overlap each other, they start to um, add th their energy to each other or take energy away from each other. Troughs start to line up with troughs. Peaks start to line up with peaks. Sometimes a trough and a peak will line up and then it flattens out. Sometimes a peak and a peak will come perfectly into synchronicity with each other and you get a, 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 an extended giant size peak or a trough and a trough will come together and you have this massive hole in the ocean. <clears throat> There's always this chit chat about waves coming in threes. I think from what I've seen, there's some credence to that. But the thing that is definitely true about um, the ocean is that you can have these king waves where you've got giant waves which have been built up over time. They've started to overlap as, you know, w waves are going at slightly different speeds. They start to catch up with or slow down and peaks join peaks, troughs join troughs. And you can have these king waves that come through which are much bigger freak waves, whatever you want to call them, but something ginormous which is going to come flowing in. <clears throat> Places where this can happen um, and really trip you up in the Southern Ocean uh, is at the, the bottom of South Africa, which we're going to talk about just now, and at the bottom of Cape Horn, which we'll discuss a little bit later on when we get to that section of the race. But anywhere where there's something projecting down into that basically unstopped weather system, that's when you're going to get some pretty big effects. Cape Horn has its own mystique and its own law because 
it is the only massive constriction in the Southern Ocean. These systems go round, the waves go round, nothing stops them until you get to Cape Horn, which is suddenly only about 700 miles wide between the Antarctic Peninsula and Tierra del Fuego and um, Cabo de Hornes, the island at the, the, the very tip of South America. Um, and the, the, the Andes come down into the, the, uh, the kind of spine of South America there. They're thousands of meters high. And then over on the Antarctic side, you have another set of mountains, which are obviously the other half of the mountain chain. They're higher. So suddenly the wind has got something which is kind of slowing it down and tucking it down into an area that's maybe only a thousand miles wide for the wind. The water is massively constricted there. The energy inside the water is massively constricted. And then worst case upon worst case, the plateau around Cape Horn is very shallow. And that is why Cape Horn is so feared, because as those waves come in through that massive uh, fetch from basically they some of these uh, wave energies and some of these uh, these patterns in the in the ocean will have started literally on the east side of South America and traveled all the way around the world and now they're coming crashing into the west side of South America and that means that the energy which is operating in thousands of meters of water suddenly the ocean bed starts to rise up a lot of friction is created as the water is attempting to move and heave and change shape as the energy runs through it the energy is stacked up towards the surface and suddenly these mountainous energies start to produce mountainous waves you've got king waves coming in you've got waves which are out of sequence with each other you've got massive troughs you've got this energy stuffing up which is basically like a oceanic wave hitting the beach you don't want to be at Cape Horn when there's new a new new weather system coming in. When there's new breeze and new swell on the plateau at Cape Horn, you don't want to be there. Another place you don't want to be, particularly when it's big weather, is in the Agullas Current. The Agullas Current flows around the bottom of uh, South Africa. It comes down the coast of Mozambique and then hooks its way around, um, sticks its nose into the Atlantic Ocean, but that's kind of at the end of the, the current. It is an area of the world's ocean that you need to be extremely careful um, your timing going into there. And this general overview of the kind of nature of the Southern Ocean ties into my experience on start day going into there with the Velux 5 Oceans race because we were actually um, stopped from starting on the day that we were going to go, which is very unusual for an offshore yacht race because the race organizers were very aware of the fact there was a storm system coming in from the from the uh, from the west, of course, in the Southern Ocean, and uh, it had a lot of strength, 50, 55 knots behind it, and they saw no point whatsoever in dealing with um, a start line for solo 60-foot boats with that much wind there. So they decided to um, stop the start, which they did for, I think, two days or three days, let it all go through, let the sea flatten down a bit, and then we set off, because sending us out into 50 knots running against uh, the Agullas current would be... Uh, would be a recipe for, for potentially injury, certainly for damage and for a lot of uh, risk that we just don't need to take. Now, in terms of setting off on yacht races, um, compare that to setting off on <clears throat> cruising uh, uh, endeavors. Um, there is a little bit of a different attitude. I find myself always a little bit confused by the uh, the huge amount of pre-planning which people are doing based on weather reports, you know, 10 days out, seven days out, five days out, three days out. The only weather report which really has any validity is the one that's in your hand. And it only has that, you know, that has come right there and then hot off the presses. It's in your hand. It's about the period of time that's starting 
right now immediately and that validity only lasts for a very short period of time. So what I've found over the period of time that I've been going to see is that whilst you need to be aware of general patterns, <clears throat> you need to be aware of big systems that may be coming in. You certainly need to be aware of currents. You need to be plotting, you know, am I in the Southern Ocean here? I am, am I in Long Island Sound? Am I, what, what is the nature of the beast here? Is it highly variable or is it, you know, big systems that are making their effect known? You've got to have that overall 30,000 foot view of what's going on. But in terms of making a, a race plan, based on weather systems, unless you're doing it to trial things and to, to set up different ideas of what you might do and how you may run the overall strategy of the race, there's very little value in looking and looking and looking and looking at the weather on the days going into the race, unless it literally is for your own interest. You can't plan anything based on um, weather forecasts, which are seven days ahead of start day, five days ahead of start day, even three days ahead of start day. Again, to reiterate, you still need to be looking at the weather in terms of the, the big picture and, you know, if there's storms coming in, we all know about Fastnet. We all know, of course, about the Sydney Hobart race. You know, we need to be aware. But in terms of smaller things, smaller patches of water you might want to get to, smaller shifts and fronts you may be ahead of, there's no point really in a yacht race looking at anything apart from the the, the forecast on that day. Um from our point of view for the races that I do, start time will still be start time. You can't pick any other time. So you may as well get the weather forecast that morning, have a look at it, and then make a cold slice decision on what it is that you're going to do. My concern has been that particularly when you're dealing with stronger weather systems or lighter weather systems, people start to, they look at it five days out and they go, oh my goodness, that looks strong. And then the weather report goes up by three or four knots and they say, well, it's strong, but it's still doable. And then the weather report goes up by another three or five knots. And they go, well, it's really starting to blow now, but I think it'll be okay. They're almost like persuading themselves into it, whether it be that the wind is getting stronger than they expected or that the wind's getting lighter than they expected. Um, for me, I like the fact that I kind of keep my head out of it. I just look at the general overall plan. And then when it comes to start day, hopefully, you know, the boat's ready. The boat's ready 24 hours before. I'm looking to make that happen one day. Um, but you've got that time to just sit down and look at it completely fresh. Now, I have previously opted not to start uh, important yacht races or certainly not to proceed with starts of important yacht races based on the fact that I make a, uh, a split decision right then when I see the weather and I base it on my gut instinct of what I can and can't do with the boat and the crew and the skill level that we've got on board. And I think of the 2016 Newport Bermuda race, there was a terrible weather forecast, which was uh, due to have us smashed on the rocks if we even put our nose out of port. Um, we had that in hand. I tried to stay out of the mix a little bit. As it came to start day, that weather forecast was still there of this potential for you know, utter disaster and having a trainee crew on board, um, I made a split decision. I'm not doing it. And we went out, we went over the start line. We sailed for an hour or two in beautiful, beautiful conditions off of, uh, off of the start line there in Newport and then turned around and came back in. We waited, uh, about 18 hours and then we went out again and we missed every bit of weather there was. I don't think in the end there really was that much weather, but I felt safer because I wasn't trying to persuade myself into it, which I saw a lot of people up and down the docks. Have you seen it now? Now they're saying it's going to be 55 knots. Oh, now they're saying it could be 70 knots. It's like, I worry that you could persuade yourself into something. Going into the Southern Ocean, however, 
experienced you are as a sailor, however good your boat is, however well set up you are, you need to have that overall picture of where you're going and the fact that this is not some, you know, this is not even a transatlantic. This is something very serious. Um, and then you make a decision on the day, is this okay for me to get going? Looking at the immediate situation around you, uh, the currents and that departure point from Cape Town and whether it's going to be safe for you to proceed. So I set off um, with uh, the Agullus current definitely giving me some hassle, giving me some, um, some bumps and lumps along the way, but I had a pretty clear idea. And what I wanted to do as the other boats headed to the south uh, east, taking a longer general kind of path down to the prevailing westerlies about 500 miles to the south of Cape Town, I decided to go straight down, straight south, and get into the westerlies as soon as I can. And rather than fighting with the current and fighting with the very, very lumpy, bumpy um, situation that the current versus the wind was creating, I thought I'll shoot south, get into the westerlies, and then I can be off and flying down south as soon as possible. And that brings us to uh, Polars. So <laughs> we haven't uh, necessarily discussed this before, I don't think, but Polars are a chart which allows you to understand the speed that your boat is capable of at different true wind angles and at different true wind speeds. And if you haven't seen these before, for many boats, they tend to look a bit like a, a butterfly. They're often called butterfly uh, diagrams. Um, but it's uh, obviously you can't go directly upwind. Um, and then as you get some kind of beating angle, you have more speed available, which is um, plotted on the chart, which has concentric rings going out from the center, the center being zero speed. And then maybe up in two, three, four knot uh, jumps as it uh, as the uh, the concentric rings work out from the center. The Around the edge of the chart is uh, at the kind of one, two, three, four o'clock positions are the true wind angles. So you've got obviously zero true wind angle when it's on the head at the 12 o'clock position. By the time you're at the three o'clock position, you've got the wind, true wind 90 degrees on the beam. When you're at that five o'clock position, you're on a broad reach going into a, a run. And then when you're at the six o'clock position, the, the wings of the butterfly sort of tuck back together towards the butterfly's butt because speed downwind is very slow before then we start the chart off on the other jibe and create the same pattern on the other side. So polars can give us an idea of what's our target speed for any boat. They're all created for each individual boat. And then if you've got particular sails or um, have done modifications to your boat, then there'll be custom ones done for you. So the routing software I was using was Expedition and I had the polars for the boat um, and I looked at the weather routing that the computer was able to produce and it said that I'll be able to get south, get into these westerlies five or six hundred miles south of Cape Town and then I'd be flying. And I looked at the direction that the other three competitors were had setting off, four competitors Baby Palm was setting off on and uh, I thought why are they all going to the southeast? Like it's a more it's a more conservative option because they're it's they're on the straight line, the straight line heading to Wellington, New Zealand, which was to be our next stop. Um, but it's so obvious to go south here. Like, why wouldn't you do that? So anyway, I set off. Now, what I did not understand, or no, I understood it. I just hadn't comprehended the issue is that the polars on the boat were set up for the boat running a code zero. And I did not have that sail on on board. And that was a major gap in my armory. It was a major problem in many circumstances. But right now, the way the issue displayed itself was the fact that um, the polars said, 
when they were plugged into the weather routing, it looked at the weather. The computer looked at the weather. It looked at the sales I had available. It looked at the speeds that those sales could produce. And it said, well, you'll be able to get south and get into the westerlies and you won't get hit by this high, which is coming in from the west. Well, I set off, but it's not exactly saying you need to put up your code zero. It's just saying this is your target speed. This is your target speed. And I just kept missing the target speed all the time. I had a big Solent jib. I had the staysail inside it. I was working hard, trimming hard, but I was all the time 20% down on target speed. And what that added up to after about um, 24 hours is that rather than nipping in front of the high that was coming, I drove directly into it. And the happy dance that I had been doing 24 hours before um, suddenly turned into the very unhappy dance as very quickly the rest of the fleet, once again, within a thousand miles of the start, started trying to drive away from me. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd had a hard enough time just getting back onto the water. I discussed that in the last um, podcast, you know, the very difficult emotional situation that had been going on for me with relationships and my father very ill at home. I had come through that. I had... Um, talked thing through with everybody. I had got an understanding of uh, where I was in, in the situation, where everybody else was, what they needed from me, what I needed from them. And I was happy to go on with the race. But I did need to get out of the bit of a funk that I'd been in with um, <clears throat> being so dreadful uh, competitively in the first leg. So to suddenly end up behind again in the Southern Ocean, um, uh, within a thousand miles of the start, you know, I was ended up like 150, 200 miles behind. Um, was just devastating. Uh, I learned at that point, I just kept looking at it and looking and lo looking at it. And then one day, clunk, the, 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 <laughs> the penny dropped in my head and I realized I don't have that sale. Um, so I think being aware of the sales you've got, the boat you've, you've, you've got to hand, the, the capabilities of that boat, your capabilities, and then sharing what you have around with people. Otherwise, you end up being in a bit of a self-affirming bubble of, well, the boat's not sunk yet, so it must be a strong boat. Oh, the boat goes fast. I can really get this boat flying, but you've got nothing to compare it to. You need to have other people, a community of folks to chat to, to say, hey, I'm doing this. Is that right? Um, I've, I've been uh, trying to develop this thing. Is that a good direction to go into? To have that ability to share uh, what you're doing with other people and then find out if there's some massive gap in your armory. Do you need to have a manual bilge pump that uh, is able to pump, you know, this compartment the electric pumps don't get to? Do you need to have um, another sail? Do you, have, have you made the mistake of realizing that the polars that you've got don't cover the sail inventory you've got? As I said, getting into this race and going and doing this was a fantastic opportunity, but it was one that um, was rushed into, had very little money connected to it, and um, was uh, <laughs> being piloted, i.e. by me, by someone who had no experience in, in this kind of boat or, or this kind of sailing, really. I'd just gone around the world with the Clipper race. I'd skippered uh, Qingdao in the 0910 race. So I had left Cape Town on very similar, in, in very similar circumstances uh, on a very similar course, but obviously with a very different kind of boat. So Making mistakes, as always, leads to experience, and experience means that things are safer later on. Although I was behind in the Southern Ocean, I think now looking back, it probably was for the best for me. And I say that why? I say that because it meant that it meant that my pride was already hurt, my enthusiasm was dampened, I was suspicious of my skill set again, I was cautious, 
and that probably is the best way to enter the Southern Ocean unless you really know what you're doing and you've been beating on your craft for years. You know how to handle your boat in those kind of super heavy conditions. I do see a couple of like YouTube channels and that which are um, doing uh, titles like, uh, you know, across the North Sea in a 22 foot boat in, in a Force 10. And I think, you know, it's kind of, it's it's an odd way of looking at things. We're living in a world now where lots of people end up at sea who wouldn't have gone to sea commercially, you know, a hundred years ago. They're going for experience. They're going for excitement. They have access to cruising boats and they can go out there. Can you take a, you know, sub 30 foot boat out into a force 10? Absolutely. No, no problem at all. Just leave the dock, get out onto the water. And now you're having an adventure. Are 30 foot boats safe to take out into those kind of conditions? Uh, no. Unless you've been on one that gets you know into a situation where it's um, taking on water, things are breaking, things are getting horrific, you don't know what's past the edge of the envelope that you think you're mastering. Um, taking a, a, an open 60 into the Southern Ocean without really knowing the performance capabilities, safety, um, uh, how to handle very, very heavy conditions, big waves, um, I think it could have been extremely dangerous. If I thought I was in some kind of magically competitive position, I was in amongst the rest of the fleet and was actually vying with them for competition, I think I could have ended up being driven into mistakes that would have been potentially very dangerous. So it was very hard to <clears throat> to suck it up a second time and uh, and be behind. But um, you know what? I think I learned from it. And uh I remember in the, the book I was writing, I wrote a book a number of years ago and then never published it. I think we're going to be starting to release that in a chapter-based uh, version uh, shortly, um, certainly if there's, if there's interest for it. But um, I was saying that the problem I still had with the boat as I went into the Southern Ocean is that I still didn't know when to reef, which sounds really weird. If you know, I already had like 100,000 miles experience going into this race, how can I not know when to reef? You reef when you know, circumstances require it and the boat's going to go faster because of it and things are going to be safer and absolutely, totally got that, absolutely understand. But with this kind of endeavor, it's like driving a Formula One car or an Indy car or something like that. Um, you know, if you drive it sensibly and carefully with hands at uh, 10 to and was it 10 to two, is it? Or a quarter to three. If, you, if you're driving like that in Indy car, uh, you're going to be getting around the course, but you're never going to be competitive. And that was the thing with this kind of sailing. If you're making uh, reefing choices based on those kind of um, criteria, you're not going to be very competitive. And uh, I can tell you now that the way that I was running the boat and the way that I was um, choosing to reef was very, very conservative and not competitive at all. The thing with this kind of boat is that it's um it's designed to be out of control by most um by most kind of metrics it's basically designed to be out of control most of the time and if it's not leaping out the waves and sticking its nose under the next one like some giant carbon porpoise um it, you're really not kind of doing it right and it, it doesn't like that either it's, it's kind of as we said last time like being on a horse that's galloping is very smooth and you really feel yeah this is what this thing's for if you're in an open 60 and you're doing 10 knots in the Southern Ocean, which I was at times, um, being very cautious and very scared, um, it is, it is, the boat is not happy about that. So looking at that a little bit, 
speed is your friend when you're in heavy conditions. If you read um, The Long Way Round by Bernard Mortissier, his account of the Golden Globe race in the 60s, um, there's a point in that in which he basically changes the direction in which offshore sailing tactics went. Uh, he, he makes a decision that he writes about. He's trailing warps and, and tires, I think, and all sorts of stuff behind Joshua, which is a, a double-ended boat. You know, it's that kind of Colin Archer style with the two pinched off ends. Um, a good design in many ways because the waves split on either side. It's a little bit harder to get pooped uh, and get pushed around. But as the boat leans over, um, if you were to, as any boat leans over, uh, if you were to take a knife and somehow cut the boat off the water and just leave what section of the hull is in the water and then have a look at that, a boat that's sitting upright has got a symmetric plan form shape, i.e. if you were to cut the hull right off the water and just examine the shape of the bit that's still left in the water, it would be symmetrical on either side. But when a boat leans over, it has an asymmetric plan form shape, and if you were to cut the hull off and just examine what's in the water, it has a foil type shape. And we call this bow steering when a boat goes down a wave and it sticks its sticks its nose into the next wave, it can then get pulled off left or right depending on you know the the dynamics in the wave and the the asymmetric plan forms kind of um, uh, uh, force that it applies to the water and the water applies to it. But that can also happen when you've got a um, a double-ended boat with a with a, a pinched stern that the plan form shape of the boat as it rolls and rolls from side to side, the waves are pushing and steering and like stern steering the boat. And that's not even the rudder doing that. That's the waves pushing on the back of the boat. So he started to realize that um, if he didn't do something, um, he was gonna lose the boat. So he cut the warps free um, and basically started a new way to go sailing in the in, in big waves and particularly in the Southern Ocean. And that is that you have to try and keep up in somewhat, depending on the limitations of your boat, you've got to keep up with the waves. And the reason for it is this. If you're going at higher speed, um, the apparent wind lowers. So that's already better on the sails and on the rigging. If you're going at more speed, you have more ability to steer. There's more water flowing over the rudder, which gives you quicker response on the helm, which gives you the ability to you know, dodge a hole, turn on the top of a wave, um, avoid a breaking um, face of a wave, that kind of thing. If you are uh, going very, very slowly, everything's happening a lot more kind of ponderously and, 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 uh, and you know, glacially, and you can't whip the nose of the boat around and get it into where you need it to be to be safe on the next wave. If you're um, in, in synchronicity with the waves, if you're in time with the waves, in phase with the waves, um, less wave fronts pass uh, under or, or over or around the boat. If you're doing, you know, if you've got a 40 footer and you're doing eight, nine knots and the weather is blowing hard and you've got waves that are traveling at 15, 16 knots, if you're doing four or five with just a little Spitfire jib up and trailing warps or maybe even doing two or three, every single wave, boom, 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 they're all coming over you and every single one is an opportunity for things to go horribly wrong. If you're in, <clears throat> pardon me, if you're in phase with the waves, and you're moving fast, and um, you, th those waves are going to start coming over you a lot more slowly, which means you reduce the uh, operational cycles, the work cycles on the boat. And that means uh, easier for the crew, 
easier for the boat, easier for each individual tiny component, only one or two of which need to fail for you to have some catastrophic uh, experience. So um, speed and, and moving quickly are very important. At the time when I went into the Southern Ocean, I still didn't really understand entirely just how fast an open 60 has to go to be able to um, stay in phase with the waves and what its capability was. The other thing to consider is the fact that if you have a conservative set of sails up, um, I had quite a, I had my Solent jib out, which is pretty big. It uh, you know it fills the fore triangle of the boat with a, a masthead forestay on, um, but obviously bigger head sails are available, <laughs> and I could have been flying them, um, pulling the boat along at higher speed, lowering the apparent wind, lowering the work cycles from the water, but with that conservative. Um, set of sails on the mainsail which on this boat obviously is a large square top main we have a lot of roach in the main that is if you take a straight line from the back of the boom and draw that line right to the head of the mast anything which is outside that straight line is the roach of the sail the sail already had a lot of just curvature in the back of it but it also had a square top on it which adds a huge amount of sail area up high and that's done on these boats we can discuss that at a later time but it's done to heel them over so they sit at a particular angle a lot more easily the angle they're designed to to go fastest when the the boards are upright when the rudders are upright <clears throat> when the boat's sailing at the angle that the designer uh, designed it to sail at it's a much quicker more agile craft but um, that's caused by these square top mains heeling the boat over when you're going downwind that square top main is pressing forwards but it means that you have a big force at the top of a long lever i.e your mast pushing the bow of the boat down into the waves and with a conservative jib on there's no lifting force from the jib to lift the bow over the waves. so you end up sticking the nose of the boat into every single wave you possibly can more waves coming along from behind bang 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 up against the back of the boat They're obviously completely flat across the back of a boat like this and you know 19 foot 6 uh, 5.9 meters wide and it ends up being a very uncomfortable way uh, to, to go about your business because I was trying to be too conservative speed is your friend as long as you understand why it's your friend you understand the mechanisms that are at work the techniques that need to be employed and you can do it effectively as a safety technique you know I remember going across the Pacific on the clipper race the year before the events I'm describing now and we ended up going across the Pacific in a hurricane it was extremely windy as we came off the back of <clears throat> Japan heading east heading towards um, San Francisco and then we got knocked down at the top of the Kuriyoshio, the black current that runs up the side of the Philippines and up the um, the southern and eastern edges of Japan, um, it's where all the big tuna run. It's a five-knot current that goes northeast. We came out of there and it was blowing hard, but we got knocked down um, and water flooded. The way that the clipper boats at that time were set up, the life rafts were mounted um, on deck and one of them was above the navigation area. There was a drain in the uh, receptacle where the uh, the built-in receptacle where the life raft sat, but there was a drain that went down through the boat to obviously exit any water out of that receptacle. There was a crack in, in one of the joints of that, and uh, as we got knocked down and that part of the boat got pushed into the water, huge amounts of water sprayed into the back of my communications uh, cabinet, and that meant that we had no comms for three or four days while I took everything apart, dried it all out, got it going again. When I finally came back online, obviously everyone's telling me um, about this huge weather system that's coming, other skippers are sending me advice, um, people are telling me, get out of there, this is the kind of weather that you know destroys boats, and 
some of the less uh, easily <laughs> uh, shaken ones sent me, they obviously realized that I had an issue with electronics. I had been out of communication for two or three days and um, they sent me the centers of the, uh, the weather as it was moving and they sent me uh, information about um, concentric circles of wind speeds so that I knew what I was getting into and what was ahead. I could plot it very easily on the chart. And we went across in... I think it was over 45 knots for two weeks because we're in the system as it goes across the Pacific. And it was um, over uh, 70 knots for three days. And we weathered that with uh, one injury, which is one crew member cracked a rib or we suspect he cracked a rib as he was leopard crawling down the deck. Only three were allowed on deck at any time. One driving, one facing backwards, calling the waves and calling, you know, there was basically a, a, a rogue set of waves that kept coming down from the northwest in an otherwise uh, westerly wind. And he, the person looking after would call this rogue wave and then the boat could be turned and the stern put to it. But that, that the rib was cracked just as a, as a wave came down on top of him. Keith, it was. Hey, Keith. Um, as, as he was going over the traveler. So that was the only injury. That was the only damage we had in the entire transit across the North Pacific. But we did that because we had our trisail up. And we had our staysail up, which is a big sail on the Clipper 68. And then we had our storm staysail out on the forestay, acting as what we called our Yankee 4. So we had a lot of headsails which were lifting, a lot of headsails that are powering the boat, small amount of mainsail which was not pressing the boat in but was adding to drive. That was then on a on, you know set above the boom so it could jibe left and right as we needed to turn the stern of the boat to deal with these these little rogue waves coming down from the northwest. Um, and it was a safe and quick setup. We were doing 15 knots and the wave trains were doing 18 knots. So we had very few work cycles of the water going under us. Um, and we were able to lower the apparent wind as far as we possibly could within the situation. So when um, Bernard Matissier changed the way that offshore sailing was done there at the end of the 60s, um, that has been the way since that we make our way through the Southern Ocean as at speed, using the, the, the poor weather as much as we can to our benefit and moving the boat as fast as we could. I did not understand that. I think if I'd gone into the Southern Ocean in a competitive position, I think potentially I could have hurt myself, killed myself, damaged the boat, whatever, by, by laying on too much sail too early and, and get myself into a pickle because there's a time when you push and then there's a time when you need to just back off a little bit and let things wash over you. So that brings me to the Southern Ocean and what we call the Southern Ocean conveyor, which is this conveyor belt, we want to call it, of, of weather systems that pass uh, along underneath the bottom of the world and uh, provide the savvy sailor with the opportunity to make great haste to the east um, if, uh, if you know what you're doing. So the weather systems in the Southern Ocean are rotating, the, the, the bad weather is rotating uh, clockwise, okay? So in the Northern Hemisphere, it's rotating anti-clockwise, and in the Southern Hemisphere, it's rotating clockwise. I always remember this because Big Ben is a uh, high clock in the Northern Hemisphere. So inside my brain, the way it works, I think of clocks and highs, Northern Hemisphere. That makes me think that highs rotate clockwise in the Northern Hemisphere. Does that make sense? You have to remember that one thing. The Big Ben is a tall, a high clock in the Northern Hemisphere and everything else comes together. So in the Southern Hemisphere, it's bad weather that rotates clockwise. So that means from our point of view, the upper edge, the, uh, the, the, the Northern edge of the weather systems are 
moving, the wind is moving from west to east. So what that means is in terms of making a transit, as you go further south, the wind speed will increase. And as you go further north, the average wind speed will decrease. The wind should be coming in behind you from the west as long as you stay on the northern edge of those systems. So what you can do is you can look at the isobars um, and you can start to plot what proximity, what packing of isobars will give you the wind speed that you feel safe to operate in. And then you can just go slightly north if the isobars are too tightly packed and the wind speed is going to be too high for you. And then you can drift further south into more densely packed isobars if you need to increase your wind speed. So as the systems come in, you're watching them and you're modulating your um, your position, your latitude north and south so you get into the correctly uh, packed isobars and get the conditions that are best for your boat. For smaller boats or cruising boats, that may well mean get up and get north and get out of the way of systems, these big, you know, huge huge waves, huge wind systems that are coming along below you and then tuck back down in behind them and, uh, and, and journey along and wait for another one. It's also the reason why, another reason why Cape Horn is so dangerous. I know I'm spooling ahead here a little bit, but I don't want to forget it when we get there. But as you get closer to Cape Horn, um, the landmass of South America starts to become a big issue. And the problem with the Horn is, is that you need to literally commit to going around Cape Horn from about a thousand miles away. Because if you uh, get in there and then the weather starts getting bad, from what we've just been discussing with the weather patterns, the only way of getting out the way of one of these systems is to go north. But then you can't go north because the landmass of South America is in the way. And that means what you're going to be doing is instead you're going to be going onto a lee shore as this weather system comes in at 40 or 50 degrees south or something. You see what I mean? So you basically commit to the horn from about a thousand miles away. You look at the weather, you try and time things right, and you get yourself around there if you possibly can. Um, you know, you're talking 56 degrees south when you go down there. And if you remember the old sailor sailing, it's the roaring 40s, it's the furious 50s, and it's the screaming 60s. And that lines up with the fact that you can pretty much take um, wind speed as being equivalent to latitude, the average wind speed as being equivalent to the latitude in the southern hemisphere. So um, 40 degrees south, average wind speed 40. Uh, now I would say that's probably taken over the year, including both the winter and the summer in the southern hemisphere. It's not just blowing 40 knots all the time, but it's averaging at 40. And then as you go further south to 50, you're averaging 50 knots during the year. And as you go down to 60 degrees south, you're averaging 60 knots. Now that's probably caused by very high peaks balancing out with very you know, reasonable lows. But even the reasonable lows will be 20 or 30 knots or something. So um, going into the Southern Ocean, these are the kind of things that we need to be aware of. The 30,000 foot view is the fact of the currents, the uh, massive oceans, the narrowing of the oceans that the landmass of South America, uh, South Africa and Australia and New Zealand represent. Um, the fact that this conveyor belt of, of, of breeze is going to be passing south of us. It's going clockwise. We need to be in there and picking our position and then working on the fact that we're going to be trying to operate the boat at a speed which is keeping the work cycles down, which is reducing the load on the boat and you know that we have a suitable boat for this kind of thing. Let's not forget that for all of the planning in the world, for all of the um, the great sense you may pick up from this and many other sources, at the end of the day, the Southern Ocean still has the ability to pull some incredible things from nowhere, like 
20 foot walls of water that come crashing down towards you um, like massive holes ahead of you, like uh, giant <laughs> islands of kelp, <laughs> like whales, like all sorts of things. Let's let's discuss the kelp for a little instant. I don't think a lot of people know this, but places like the Kogulian Islands uh, are, are massive um massive amounts of kelp around them um, it's growing off the rocks there obviously it's a very very turbulent part of the world and sometimes giant mats of kelp break off in, in pieces and add together or as a whole lot just break off and make their way out into the ocean and you can come down a series of waves and then there's like a little weird brown stuff ahead of you like what's this it's not some seaweed that you can like cut your way through it's not uh, something even that's going to like drag along behind you. It's the kind of size of of <laughs> of seaweed where you stop, <laughs> which is a bit of a surprise the first time. The first time it happened to me actually, it was only blown about twenty knots, and I drove <clears throat> I drove down this uh, this wave, and there's a bit of seaweed at the bottom of it. I came up over the peak, and on the other side of it what had been in the distance a little bit of like what's this shadow on the water resolved itself into uh, you know a, a load of weed which is as big as like i know the the, the footprint of a house of a large house <clears throat> and i drove into it and the boat started slow and slow and slower then just stopped and it started to twist around to the wind it started to heel over i eased the mainsail and everything's flapping like how the hell am i gonna get out of this so luckily uh my Yoda-like um, uh, information which had given to me by my friend Brad Van Loo, who was the much ex more experienced solo round-the-world sailor who had given me some hints and tips in, in Cape Town. He had mentioned this, and he had very kindly mentioned the way of getting off them, which is basically you harden in the sheets, you, you set your ballast, set your keel if you've got a canting keel, get the dagger boards up, and then you basically drag sideways through it. <clears throat> That's the only way of getting off them. You're not going to sail your way back out of it, like tack back up wind or do anything else. You just let the boat heel right over onto its side, not so that the tow rail is in the water. Otherwise, that's going to be catching on the weed and your stanchions are catching on the weed and everything. But you heel the boat right over <clears throat> and then it just drags its way somewhat sideways with the keel lifted by the angle of the boat, lifted out of the depths of this thing. So it's not just on the surface. It's many, many feet deep. And it's uh, if you get the, these T-keels that these boats have really stuck in it, like I don't really know how you get out of it. So the first time was a slow stop. The second time for me, which was actually just west of the Kogulians, a little bit further along in the journey, um, it was it was quite a hard stop in quite in quite a big breeze, and it was a very big mat, and that probably took me four hours to drag my way out of. Um, I that time I didn't go exactly downwind. I could see that there was an edge that was a little bit closer than all the other edges seemed to be, and so I kind of sliced the boat somewhat on a broad reach on its side <clears throat> um, over to the edge of it. But it, it, yeah, it took many hours to get out of it. So the Southern Ocean is, is capable of some pretty odd things, um, things that you don't see anywhere else. So um, I think the other thing that uh, I need to discuss here then is, you know, the other thing that is, what is the Southern Ocean? The Southern Ocean is a dislocation from other human beings that uh, doesn't really exist many other places. From my point of view, whenever I've gone offshore, I always deal with everything as though, you know, I'm a thousand miles offshore. Even if I'm a mile offshore and I've got a problem, 
I've never been the person to to phone the 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 Royal National Lifeboat Institute in the UK, the RNLI, or phone the Coast Guard or whatever it is, or set off the EPUB. I'm not stubborn. I'm not stupid. I'm not uh, saying don't do that. Like there's some prestige in not doing that. If you've got a problem you can't deal with, with your skill set, then then you need help. And if you're in a place where you can get help, it would be a fool that wouldn't take it. But with the skill set I've developed and the, and the great luck I had with you know being taught engineering and and problem solving mechanicing by my dad, um, there's most things I can deal with. And I've uh, you know I've uh, been lucky to sail with great crews where we can put the issue around to everybody and amongst us we have the skill set to get it done but I have found that so far touch wood I have not um, had a situation where I've got to call anybody but if you were to have to call somebody the southern ocean has got so little shipping has got so little coverage from overflying uh, rescue flights or anything like that that you are basically on your own in a way that <clears throat> You, you may not be necessarily used to. If you've crossed oceans, crossed the Atlantic and things, you are on your own. And we've all had those days at sea where you don't see ships, you know, for, for, for many, many miles, for many, many days. But ultimately, if you're crossing between Japan and San Francisco, there's probably some shipping around. If you're traveling from Newport to Bermuda, there is shipping around. If you're going on the Ark across from the Canaries to the Caribbean, there are ship lanes that cross that. But there are very few shipping lanes that go through the Southern Ocean. And certainly if you're in this thing of playing the conveyor belt north and south, you could be literally, you know, on the same uh, overall journey as a, as a, as a steam, as a steam powered ship, my God, <laughs> I think we're a bit past that as a, as a, uh, you know, a, an engine driven ship. But those ships are on the courses which are plotted for them by companies whose job it is to plot that kind of stuff. And it's going to be dealing with the weather, it's going to be dealing with currents, it's going to be dealing with the shortest straight line, it's going to be dealing with all sorts of elements which are nothing to do with what a sailboat's doing. So just because you're going from Cape Town to Western Australia does not mean on a sailboat that you're anywhere near any kind of commercial shipping. Um, you may be a thousand miles south in a good weather system that's great for sailing, um, well away from any ships. If they then have to divert towards you, you know, ships these days are faster, but they are not instant and if they need to come a thousand miles to your position there's going to take that's going to take some time it might be depending on the ship if it's got to go at wind it could only be doing 250 miles a day it's going to take four days to get to you like you have to start thinking about this a little bit in the southern ocean <clears throat> and you have to be working out plans not only for what to do if things go wrong but also just the overarching kind of concept of how to be on your own or in your small crew or whatever it is in those conditions, like how is that going to affect you psychologically? One of the things that happened to me um, <clears throat> on this leg was that we had set off from Cape Town just at the beginning of December, and I was actually going past a little island. I believe it's called Prince Edward Island. I should probably check that as we're talking because memory plays tricks. But I was passing by this uh, island, which is just about a thousand miles uh, to the uh, south and east of Cape Town. Um, and it was happening on Boxing Day. And I always remember that because it's, uh, it was, I'd had Christmas Day, which we'll discuss in a little while. And I had dragged myself through it in terms of, um, you know, psychologically holding myself together and, and staying upbeat and staying positive and all the rest of the stuff. But I was hurting 
um, for the fact that I was so far away from people. I was behind in the race. I was feeling very, very down. And I was really having a problem with um, staying upbeat and positive. The the thing which really gave me a lift, I'd, I'd worked my way through Christmas. I'd made it the best I possibly could, but I actually ended up passing. And yeah, I just checked it online. It's called um, Prince Edward Island. That's not to be mixed up with the one in, in uh, Atlantic Canada near where I live, but there's a couple of islands there, a thousand miles south and east of uh, Cape Town, Marion Island and Prince Edward Island. And I believe I passed between the two of them. And suddenly there's all these dolphins and birds and penguins and I looked out on this snowy hillside and uh, and there were other things that were alive around me and that made me feel incredibly uplifted and positive and I realized that um, as I went further south into the southern ocean I was going to have to take a lot of time just to keep myself buoyed up and I can remember the day before on Christmas day I had written a blog which I think is appropriate as I'm recording this now we're dealing with self-isolation from uh, COVID-19 um, the world's kind of going a little bit crazy at the moment and um I wrote a blog, which I think is kind of appropriate. I'm not sure exactly if it, if it translates, but the basic nature of the blog was the fact that I was recognizing that um, if I had not put any effort in at all to Christmas, I would have got nothing out of it. As it was, um, they'd done a photo shoot in Cape Town and uh, they had uh, you know, brought some Christmas hats on board and some Christmas mince pies and a little Christmas tree and they'd done this to each skipper. They'd taken some Christmassy kind of pictures and then those are the ones that would be released on Christmas Day in the various press and whatever that were interested in the story of the race. Um, not relying, of course, on us to, to send them back because we were, <laughs> on the whole, pretty bad at that kind of communication. But um, what happened on my boat is that my erstwhile uh, uh, cohort in all this, uh, Aston, he had basically nicked the props from this uh, photo shoot and put them in a box and, uh, and marked it not to be open till Christmas. So Christmas Day was coming. You know, there's not much difference between Christmas Eve and any other day when you're at sea. But when it came to Christmas Day, I was, you know, OK, I'm going to do my best here. I'm going to make this up uplifting for myself. I opened this box from Aston and what's inside? the little miniature Christmas tree, the Christmas hats, mince pies with bites out of them where the skippers have been doing their photo shoots and, um, and the razzmatazz that makes Christmas what it is. And I was absolutely bowled over by that. It was a fantastic piece of minor theft on uh, Aston's behalf and it really meant a lot to me. And it meant that I decorated the inside of the boat, as silly as that may sound, and I started to think about the fact that the effort I was putting in was really what I was getting out of it. I was making myself happy in a situation which had been extremely easy to be made unhappy by the circumstances I was in. And the blog I wrote was saying, you know, if you're in your apartment block or your street or wherever you live and you know that there's people around you who um, are on their own for Christmas, um, it's kind of your duty to go and do something and make that into a positive experience, make that day into a positive experience for those people. Now, in this situation with COVID-19, you can't really be going around and knocking on people's doors because we're not already up for that. But in this world of social interactions through the internet, are there ways of communicating with people? Are there ways of setting up Facebook groups or setting up um, WhatsApp groups amongst uh, your neighbors? Is there ways of putting I don't know if you can even do letters under the door because people are worried about touching things, but you could maybe, you know, can you talk through a window to somebody that's on the inside? Is that okay? That would be meaningful, right? Is there a way to change somebody else's perspective on what's happening? Because the Christmas I had at sea on the boat was made okay by the fact that I made it good. But if you're in a low 
emotional ebb and uh, you know this self-isolation for many people will be a very low uh, ebb which really uh, hits home and, and, and points out to them how alone they are in the world. Is there a way to change that for somebody else um, and make it something? Because I think too often with emotions, people just emotions are just washing over people like it's uh, like you're a forever like a victim of emotion. Where actually, from my perspective, certainly be on the boat and I see people go up and down, crew members who are hugely combative, people that are down, people that are rude, people that are very, very positive, people that are you know inciting others to to greater uh, endeavors and. It's a choice that's being made. It's being made every time you open your mouth. It's being made every time you um, act. It's every choice you make when you're in a group of other people, whether that's in your crew on a boat, in your school, in your, your local community. You choose how you interact with people, and that then denotes the general kind of makeup of that group of people. And if people are allowing folks to be on their own, um, it's going to be a very negative experience. If people are taking the effort to go and help folks or phone somebody or WhatsApp them or Facebook them or FaceTime or whatever it is, that can make the difference all the way. And I think that's the thing I learned from this experience of being, as I say, in a, in a situation where I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. I knew it was very dangerous. I knew I was behind, obviously, in the race. There was very little positivity to be pulled out of it. And yet I took a time. I faked it until I until I make make it until i made it i i i think okay i'm gonna put a christmas tree out i'm gonna put the silly hat on i'm gonna sing some carols i'm gonna do whatever i was doing and i think i was just blowing along with like only the mainsail up going very slowly very clearly failing badly at the uh the 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 job of being in a solo around the world yacht race but i made that happy because i had had that bad experience that very deeply uh, disturbing emotional experience on the previous leg where I'd really learned like how bad things can get if you let them get that way and I'd realized that even though I wasn't feeling like it's kind of like you have to eat when it's mealtime even if you don't feel hungry you've got to eat because otherwise the sugars get low and then you don't want to eat anymore it's like a debilitating cycle and I think a lot of psychology is debilitating cycles which are the person themselves is unable to to break that cycle and starts to fall further and further into the hole or other people don't intervene and do something that breaks the cycle for that person. And yet some action on your own behalf or action from other people can really change things around and make, you know, even this awful situation we're going through with COVID into something more positive or the situation I was in, um, you know, more positive for me. I was very aware in that situation that, you know, if you step off the boat, if you fall off the boat, it is just coldness and blackness and death. And when you're on the boat, it is literally life and brightness and happiness and positivity. And the great thing is you can literally stand, clipped on, of course, when you're on deck, but stand clipped onto the boat, looking over the side, contemplating for you what it is that you're getting out of life experience. And I that is has happened to me a number of times at sea, and it's that stirs me to go and make a round of tea for people or go and, you know, dig those special cookies out the bottom of the box or go and put the Christmas tree up, even though who's going to see it and all the rest of that stuff. It ends up being that if you have the opportunity to view over the edge a little bit and see how badly wrong things can do, I think it can make you very, very aware never to get back to that again in your life. So on Christmas Day, I made it very, very positive for myself. And on Boxing Day, I was rewarded by the sight of going past Marion Island and Prince Edward Island in the Southern Ocean there and seeing all these this wonderful bird life and, and aquatic life and penguins, literally penguins darting through the water, and dolphins and things. And 
it was a uh, an external source cheering me up, but I'd already learned that I could do it from the inside if I needed to as well. The other thing that happened at that point was that uh, a load of birds started following the boat, and um, I, I don't know anything about birds. I uh, um, There are a couple things at sea which I have kind of decided I don't want to know about, which sounds a bit odd. There's huge amounts of the endeavor that I'm involved in, sailing and offshore sailing. We've discussed this before, you know, hydraulics, electronics, navigation, satellite communication systems, and even writing things for the media and so many things, right? And I think I decided that there's a couple things I want to just have a little bit of mystery. And this idea that um, this reductionist version of, of doing science where we just you know, it used to be, you used to look at a grasshopper and say, oh, that's a grasshopper. This is the nature of a grasshopper. It bounces, it chews things, it does whatever it does. And then we get into reductionist science where we want to pull it in pieces and describe the chemical compounds that make up the grasshopper. But I think that is where, you know, magic can be created by science, but equally it's where some of the magic gets stripped out of a thing. And if you're already like a little bit on the edge uh, emotionally and feeling things and sleep deprived and very, very tired. And, you know, I'm eating 5,000 calories a day to keep up with what I'm burning. Um, you're in a hard situation. You want to have a little couple of things that just bring wonderment and, and excitement and joy without necessarily knowing, oh, that's a blah, 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 albatross. And that's a bird. And it eats out of that. I just, they're just birds. And I, I have that with birds. And bizarrely, I have it with stars as well. Right. So, I did my uh, commercially endorsed Ocean Master and there was a time when I could draw uh, 50 stars and all their constellations in the Northern Hemisphere. I can remember doing it on the deck head above my bunk when I was studying all that stuff. And over time, obviously I still know a lot of stories about constellations. I know a lot about how the universe works and meteorites and air bursts and all sorts of things which we may see in the sky above us and you know which stars are which I can be called out and probably made to name things and all the rest of it but I don't spend my time trying to apply myself to that now other people will love the joy of astro nav and they want to do that and I totally understand it find something else that you want to have magic about for me I just look up at the stars and go wow isn't that cool I just have that kind of joy in them um could I get out my sextant and start doing astro nav probably <laughs> probably it's been a long time we can have that discussion in the future should we all be ready to go with astro nav um i've got some opinions on that but i think for me stars and the birds i see at sea and some of the aquatic life it's just a joy in them and at that this time as i went past those islands a number of smaller birds which i called fighters <laughs> and larger birds which i called bombers but were clearly albatrosses started to follow the boat and uh, they followed the boat uh, all the way, um, well, pretty much till a, a couple of thousand miles east of the Kogulians. They literally follow the boat for thousands of miles to the point that with my low amount of knowledge on these things, I thought, am I creating a massive problem here for these birds? Are they going to like turn around and go, oi, Kevin, where are we? We don't know where we are. They, I was wondering if I was like helping them to transition from A to B or if I, they thought I was some kind of fishing boat that they were going to get food from and then discover, no, they're not. And anyway... These are things that worry you when you're uh, very sleep deprived. But the upshot of it was that we had these living creatures which were around the boat, which really gave me something to focus on, just watch and just, you know, be engaged with and just stay buoyant in myself watching. And then the magnificent sight of having these albatrosses coming in. I spent a lot of time on Port Jive, I seem to remember, on that leg. So the boom would be on the starboard side of the boat. And uh, if I was on deck, the albatrosses stayed 
probably 60 to 100 feet behind the boat and maybe at a height of, I don't know, 50 or 60 feet, something like that. But if I was below decks and I wasn't moving around, after a while I realized that they would come and they would sit in the exhaust coming off the back of the mainsail, uh, maybe just slightly ahead of the exhaust, like maybe there's some pressure wave that they were sitting on. They would have their massive wings, or 17 foot wingspan, some of these things, I understand, extended and just be very carefully cruising. And they're essentially cruising right over the starboard quarter of the open 60. It's very square, as we've discussed. The boom goes right to the back of the boat. And they were sitting just on the leech of the mainsail, just over the back of the boat, just cruising and kind of looking down. And you can really sort of see the intelligence in their eyes and and just just traveling thousands of miles with the boat, either this further back position or closer to the to the mainsail um, and you'd tack and they would go away for a while and they'd come back again. But um, there was also dolphins in the water. I saw, um, I couldn't tell you the exact species, but I think there was one I saw, which I looked up afterwards, which is called Fields Porpoise, which is, uh, it doesn't have a dorsal fin, it's black and white. And uh, it looked like a, a sweet that I used to have when I was little called Licorice Comforts, which have got licorice in the inside and then like a candy wrap on, or candy shell on the outside. So I called them Licorice Comforts. and. Uh, they would be bouncing and twisting and turning like mini orcas uh, in alongside the boat. So um, lots to look at and lots to uh, to be engaged in if you took the time and had a look around. But I think that's very important with these uh, these longer voyages, whether it's the Southern Ocean or anything else. You've got to, you know, know why you're going out there and, and take your positivity from very small things. So um, the next thing which I had to deal with was uh, was ice. Now, I will tell you right now, I didn't see any ice at all in the Southern Ocean. And that's worth discussing. But there were um, limit marks on the course which we could not go south of. We, we could go south of them between marks. But when we got to the mark, to the, the longitude and latitude of the, of the mark, we needed to be north of the mark. So it'd be a very odd course if you were scalloping down into the southern ocean then coming up and going over the mark and then scalloping down into the southern ocean coming so it, it tended to push the overall general arc of the course somewhat north and that was because so they clearly want to keep us clear of ice so there's a little bit of a something to discuss here because of course you know the world is changing we have climate change and we need to understand as sailors how that affects us the place where I most have to deal with ice on a day-to-day -day basis when I'm at sea is off of uh, Newfoundland, St. John's here on the Atlantic Canadian seaboard. And certainly on the shoulder seasons of the year, you have to be very careful with ice out there. Ice for a boat is, is a big deal unless you've literally got a steel boat or maybe a ferro cement boat. Our Kevlar Open 60 would be the only composite boat I would trust in any kind of way to make impact with any kind of ice, although it would still be heavily damaged, but I would trust it to kind of keep itself together. The Open 60 striking ice, um, we've discussed before, it's just a very thin skim of carbon fiber on the outside, then Nomex core on the hull sides, and then a thin skim of carbon on the inside. So if that impacts with ice, it has a certain resistance to the ice in terms of on a, a grand scale that's not just going to you know blow a hole in the side of it like uh, pushing your finger through polystyrene but it, it is going to be damaged and that's why we have multiple bulkheads but you're in a very very serious situation if you impact the hull so hard that you're breaching the hull and then relying on your watertight bulkheads to look after you so avoiding ice is something that's very difficult um, 
ice is present in seawater at any temperature, can be present or can exist in seawater at any temperatures below 5 degrees Celsius. So that's your indicator as you're sailing around. If the temperature is regularly below 5 degrees and you're in any kind of area where ice could have carved off a glacier or could have been formed or made its way out to sea from some kind of uh, area on the land where it's been produced, um, it can exist for long periods of time at sea and not melt off. So as we were in the Southern Ocean, we were getting regular updates from the uh, race organizers and they were sending us the ice field charts from NOAA. Um, the North American um, uh, data on this, I think is some of the best in the world and they just subdivide the ocean into um, 60 mile by 60 mile, one degree by one degree subsections, depending on the, 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 the uh, size of the chart that you're getting. But, uh, and then it just will have a number in that box and it'll tell you how many pieces of ice have been detected by overflying satellites, overflying planes, uh, ships, whatever is the, the method of collecting data that exists in that area. In the Southern Ocean, I suspect it's mostly by satellite. But the things which are detected by satellites, you can imagine that they've got a minimum size. And we all know, of course, that most of an iceberg is underwater and only smaller parts on the surface. So if it's spotting like a decent piece of ice on the surface, there's a heap of ice underneath it. But what size, uh, you know, obstacle is a problem for a carbon fiber boat that's doing between 10 and 20 knots? Well, you know, <laughs> it doesn't have to be that big. <laughs> it really doesn't have to be that big. Like a meter by a meter not moving is going to make a dent in the hull if you're doing 15, 20 knots. Two meters by three or four meters is going to do serious damage. You're not talking about very large things here. If you impact them at, you know, 40, 50 kilometers an hour, which is... 20, 25 knots, you've got a major problem. So you have to start to come up with an idea. The, the main way of dealing with them first is to deal with the fact that, you know, where are they on a grand scale? Where are they in terms of um, you and your, uh, uh, are you in the Southern Ocean? Are you in the, uh, the, the, the North Atlantic? Are you near Newfoundland where they might be coming off of glaciers and making their way down? So if you've got that overall picture, that's one thing. Next thing is um, the observations in your area, which has come down to you through ice field charts from whatever source you've got them from. Next is your own observations. Have you seen ice? Have you seen things around you? You could have the most, the clearest forecast there is, but if you're there watching stuff go past you, <laughs> you've got to be cautious. You've got to be aware of the kind of boat that you're in and what it can take and not take. It might mean that you need to slow right down. You need to be posting watches. This is a bit tricky to do if you're in an open 60 race going through the Southern Ocean and you're solo. So um, you can look a little bit on the on the radar. If it's bigger things, the radar may pick it up, but you're going to have to have basically a vertical or near vertical wall or a, a strongly shaped uh, wall that is um, facing towards you for you to be able to pick it up on radar. And the kind of thing that you're going to pick up on radar is, you know, it's going to be catastrophic if you hit it. Um, for me, I was behind the other competitors. So I was, um, watching the reports that the other competitors were sending in the, the media reports they were sending in and their discussion, not one of them was mentioning ice. I was, um, uh, watching the ice field charts. I was looking around during the daytime, but to be absolutely honest, when it came to nighttime, 
you know, this is a situation again where I'd say I am risking my life, not other crew members. I'm not the captain of a boat with other people on board. I've not got my family there or anything else. I'm making a decision for me and what I feel happy with. And what I had to do in the end is just take a somewhat fatalistic uh, view of it and just keep what which I could, uh, keep a speed which I felt was uh, safe. Um, and I've got to say, I wasn't going very fast. I wasn't very successful at driving the boat quickly at that time. So I wasn't really above 20 knots very often. Um, and then basically do a bit of hoping. And I, I think that what I can take from that is that if I was making this transit with other people on board, if I was doing it with crew, if I was doing it with family, I would have to be very aware of the fact that um, there is no way of insulating yourself from the risk that you may hit ice. The only way is to have a boat which can take it, um, to go extremely slowly, to only make uh, mileage during the day. Um, and I would have to have that in my mind and make a plan based around that. As it was alone and racing, I made the plan, which is that if it happens, it happens, and I'll rely on the basic structure of this boat and the watertight bulkheads to to keep me safe in the immediate sense, try and problem solve it as much as I can uh, to, to, to render myself safe if I can, or then reach out with uh, whatever electronic means I've got to try and get some assistance. Remember, at this time, we're going... Uh, to New Zealand from Cape Town, there there is still some traffic if you have to. But um, touch wood, nothing, nothing bad happened with ice, but it definitely is a concern we have to have when we go down into the Southern Ocean or if we're in areas where ice is an issue. Um, the other thing which happened to me uh, as I was approaching uh, Australia, now we're getting, you know, we're more than halfway through this event. Uh, it's, it's a good 6,000 plus miles from Cape Town to um New Zealand. Uh, the other guys by this time were probably five, six hundred miles ahead of me. Like it was a different race, really. But the thing that started to become a problem for me was um, the cold, uh, the cold and the way it was affecting the systems on the boat. So there's two things now I'm very aware of. You have to be cautious of as the weather temperature goes colder and colder. These open sixties. To, to start this off with some levity, uh, we didn't have a toilet on board. That's not something I'm ever going to do again. If I uh, do uh, take an open 60 around the world again, which I hope to do, um, I think for the extra couple of pounds a toilet uh, is, I, I don't think anybody's ever won or lost a race based on the weight of the, um, the toilet. Um, what I was using was a bucket. And if you're interested, you have to be very cautious with buckets because some plastic whilst holding up to the, the weight of a... Uh, of a, a happy human in the uh, equatorial climbs, as it starts to get down south and it starts to get colder, those buckets can get brittle. And all I'm gonna say is, uh, it's not good when they shatter. <laughs> but the other thing I learned, which is a little bit more uh, useful, is that, uh, well, I guess you could say it's useful because plastics can break and become a lot more breakable. Things that may have flexed and may have, you know, um, allowed you to uh, operate something in a particular way based on the flexibility of the plastic, that may not work. That actually, I guess, does tie into something we're about to talk about. But um, the, the issue I came across is the fact that my batteries started to get uh, very, very, very difficult to charge and very difficult uh, to, to get them to keep a charge. And that was because the lower temperatures 
Um, they were already quite weak batteries. They'd already been on the boat for a number of years. We didn't have the money to change them out. So we'd left them. There were two big 8D batteries. They had the very, very big like truck batteries. And um, they'd been completely fine. They'd given me everything I needed. I had solar panels, which were of limited usefulness. Again, it was an older system that had been on the boat for a while. Um, I, I don't know exactly how much it was throwing in, but I wouldn't say it was much over 100 or 200 watts. And I was... Um, running an autopilot system. So I really was relying on my diesel engine to do most, a little Volvo engine to do most of my charging. And um, what became very clear as it got colder and colder in the Southern Ocean is that I was having to charge for longer and longer and longer periods. And I was having to charge more and more frequently to be able to keep the gear going. And um, that started to very quickly become a problem for me. So I came to a point probably just slightly east of the longitude of um, Perth in Western Australia, that I was going to have to go north, get off the racing line, the, the, the straightest line between Cape Town and, and New Zealand, seen as a, a curve on a, on a Mercator projection. It had me quite far south of Australia. I knew I had to come up further north to warm up the environment for the batteries and to have more sunlight for the solar cells. That's something else to be aware of is the fact that if you're going to be sailing in these parts of the world and you do have solar on the boat, the amount of hours and the intensity of the sunlight um, is massively reduced. And, um, you know, in retrospect, a wind generator would have been much, much better uh, in that situation than the solar I had. But, you know, we were limited by budget. So we had what we had. So I started to go north and that created um, some very uncomfortable moments as I started to go north because uh, I then had to start to cut through weather systems, which um, I was on the wrong side of. I remember particularly coming across a high pressure system, which now is rotating anti-clockwise because we're in the southern uh, hemisphere. And I had to go on its northern side to keep heading up towards uh, Australia. As it was, I ended up passing through the Bass Strait. That's, that's where the weather took me. But uh, to, to get just north and off the racing line south of Australia, I had to go on the wrong side of this high and ended up beating up wind for two days in open 60, which I read back through my notes the other day in a little journal I kept on the boat. And it just said beating in this boat is miserable and um <laughs> i did <laughs> i did look at that and think to myself oh why do i want to take my open 60 west around the world um i know how miserable that can be but um i was pretty tired at the time and uh did not want to be doing it i think there was a lot more going on in my head but yeah upwind and open 60 not awesome but um what happened at this time which was most critical for me was that the engine which I was relying on so so desperately for charging um, became increasingly difficult to start and I precursor this by saying I know a lot about diesel engines I know a lot about trouble solve uh, tr problem shoot <laughs> I know a lot about problem solving and troubleshooting diesel engines even if I can't say it um, so I was looking at the system. I'm trying to work out what's going on. I'm thinking about filters. I'm thinking about contamination in the fuel tank. I'm thinking about, you know, even the timing on the DPA pump. Has that got an issue? Like all sorts of things that it possibly, possibly could have been, but it was getting very hard to crank. And then one night, I think it was, yeah, it was definitely night. Or it started in the early evening and it became nighttime during the period of this issue. Um, it would not start. It would not start at all. It was turning over and over and over. But, you know, I've got limited battery power. I'm on my, my uh, uh, start battery and the 
house batteries are running the autopilot and we're doing 15 knots through the Southern Ocean and the engine just rub, 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 just turning over, turning over, turning over, no intention at all to kick and start whatsoever. So I try and do everything I possibly can. I get to a point after, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours, a point at which I already sort of started charging. The batteries are dying on me. They're not holding a charge. Um, the autopilot is starting to intermittently give me a warning that the uh, voltage is getting very low. You know, we're down into like, I think the warning goes off at 10.8 volts, which is very, very low for a set of 12 volt um, batteries. And um, I actually ended up phoning my dad. <laughs> uh, my dad was a mechanic for, you know, years and years and years and years and years, decades, 50 odd years in his lifetime. He was a mechanic. And uh, he at that time was very ill with uh, with brain cancer, which affected a lot of what was going on. But he was still 100 percent compass mentis. And I phoned him as much to hear friendly voice. You know, bearing in mind at this point, I'm a thousand miles south of Australia <laughs> in the dark in a boat that the 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 power is failing on and uh, it's very cold because the engine's the only source of heat and I've got a survival suit on and the engine won't start and there's no other way of starting it if it doesn't start soon and we're getting to the point where the start battery is like rub, rub, rub. so I know that I can parallel with the house batteries maybe one or two times and get another good kick of it but it's it's not happening so I talked it all through with him and he um, he gave me a few ideas and a few pointers nothing which I hadn't already thought of but um it's good sometimes to have somebody like that to bounce things off, whoever it might be, because maybe not that they give you the exact answer, but they say something else that leads you through a process that then means that you you find the answer. And what he said to me is he said, from what you describe, nothing's wrong. The engine wants to start. There's something which has changed over time. It's gotten worse. And that thing is stopping the engine starting, i.e. that everything that you have checked is correct. Don't keep going and checking those things. There's something else, something that's changed over time, and that thing is what's creating the problem. And that was all he was able to say. And then he, you know, wished me well and told me he loved me, and uh, that was the end of the phone call. So I'm sitting in the dark, A, thinking, well, that was a waste of time because he's not giving me the answer, <laughs> and B, thinking, you know, what could have changed? Now, my experience of mechanical systems on boats at sea is that your first problem solving task is to work out is it environment or is it user interaction because normally it's water's got into it or corrosion's built up over time because the environment's in or somebody's changed something or somebody's blocked something or they've broken something or but it's either the environment or the user things very rarely go wrong just for the sake of them going wrong on their own. They, they very rarely just fall apart for no particular reason. And this engine had been completely fine and then suddenly wouldn't start. So kind of ummed and ahed and prodded and poked and thought about it and thought, you know, everything's right. I've checked the filters. I've done everything. So everything's right. So what could stop a diesel engine from starting? It's like, well, literally just fuel. Like it's pretty, unless basically a valve is broken or there's a hole in the piston or the DPA pump scrolls have broken off or God knows what. Like if it's just something simple, then it must be something to do with uh, the environment, something changing. And it must be something to do with something in the fuel system and the environment and changing that. And I started to think about, you know, the cold and what the cold does. And I looked across at the cracked toilet bucket and I thought about plastics in the system. And then like a shot from the blue, I realized what was wrong with the engine. And what the problem was, was that 
the system is set up, there's no like dedicated diesel tanks on these boats. So what we've basically got is outboard fuel tanks, the red outboard fuel tanks that go on the, you know, the back of your speedboat for your Yamaha or your, sorry, for your Yamaha or your Johnson or your Evinrude or whatever. It's those filled with diesel, still with the little ball valve pump that you then plug a new tank in, you pump it up, the filter starts to receive the fuel, the little lift pump on the engine starts to pull and everything's off to the races, right? But you're pumping diesel through it rather than the gasoline that you'd normally have going through it if you're running an outboard motor. But what I realized was because the change in the temperature of the environment, inside the ball valve were two one-way flapper valves made of plastic or rubberized plastic or something, some kind of nitrile material in there, which is intended so that when you squeeze the ball, um, fuel is ejected through one of these valves off down the fuel line to the engine and when you release the ball that valve closes another valve opens and the ball coming back up to its normal shape with its you know it, its elastic limit it uh it pulls fuel in from the fuel tank and what happened was that the valves inside were getting so stiff with the cold that the lift pump on the engine couldn't pull fuel through the ball valve thank god for <laughs> the wise words of mentors i took the ball valve off, I got the pipe, I put it directly in the tank, I used the primer on the side of the lift pump, the little manual primer, to just pump, 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 pump some fuel in. I got everything lined up, absolutely as it should be. I paralleled my main batteries. As I turned the key, the autopilot uh, went completely off, and it went rup, 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 bring, and it started, and it was off and away, and the autopilot was quickly reset, and uh, and we stayed on course. And I was so close to being in a situation a thousand miles offshore where all the power's gone, all the batteries are flat, there's no way to start the engine. That means I've got no comms because they require you know that voltage from the batteries to be able to operate the satellite system. I've got no autopilots. I've only got my head torch. I've not got nothing. And that was a big awakening for me, the fact that a lot of what I was doing was all based on this kind of like spine that the, the, the engine was creating and that the electrical system was creating and that I had to have other options for other things. It was many, many years later when I actually learned to sail one of those boats um, solo with no autopilot. And I, I did that on our uh, Whitbread 60 Challenger in 2016, 2017. I've now sailed her like six and a half thousand miles with no autopilot. So I'm happy of how to keep the boat going in those circumstances. But as you can imagine, a an open 60 with the 90, 100 foot mast with double rudders, with canting keel, dagger boards, all this stuff going on. It's not the easiest boat in the world to sail without an autopilot uh, or without somebody's hand on the helm. And um, it was only because of this experience I realized I needed that in my armory to be able to deal with it. And I learned another lesson about, um, you know, it's the environment so many times can have these effects on things which uh, you don't see coming and can be potentially catastrophic. So... Yeah, a moment there where I was extremely happy to have uh, the wise words of my dad come through, although he had no clue what was wrong with it either. But afterwards, I told him this story. He definitely claimed it as his uh, <laughs> as his win. So I ended up, because of the way the weather pattern was working, I ended up going into the Bass Strait between Tasmania and, um, and uh, you know, the bottom corner of Australia there through Victoria. So... Uh, for me going through, it was, I guess the time of year would be, be just 
early January. So it's not really too far off when the Sydney Hobart is run. But I, And I've never done that race. I'm looking forward to that one time. But um, I was coming from west to east. Obviously, when the racers do that race, they're going from north to south, different weather patterns in operation. But I went through in glorious sunshine. I saw a small ship for the first time, which was exciting. And I very nearly hit an island uh, <laughs> where I learned another lesson which is that, um, and I guess I'd already learned this in other places. I just was kicking myself afterwards and really like settled it into my memory. When you're doing offshore navigation, there is a different way of approaching many things. When you're inshore, depth and obstructions are a huge part of your time. When you're offshore, weather and tactics and strategy are much more of your world. And you need to be very, very, very careful uh, to make the shift. I know, of course, we all know of the issue, Walter Verbrack and the Vestas boat and crashing onto that reef in the in the Volvo race. You know, uh, I've been in a number of um, uh, lectures and, and briefings that Walter's done for different races and for, uh, you know, learning about navigation and meteorology. He is a brilliant, brilliant navigator. Um, it was an unfortunate error. It's, uh, it's one that anybody that works now purely on electronic systems is more than aware of. He's probably saved more lives than uh, were endangered during that uh, accident from people realizing you've got to understand the, the nature of the electronic charts that you're working with. Um, but, uh, you know, you need to stay zoomed in at the right level. The issue for my, me was a little bit different, and I've, I, it's kind of like the issue I had going into the Canary Islands, which I described in the third episode of this uh, series, and that is that um, the the boat, basically I'd been doing something on the chart and then the the chart had been left zoomed into that area and the boat had driven away and the, the chart was not set up to follow the boat. I do wonder if it'd be a kind of better default for these charts if if it just, you know, if it's a minute not worked on that maybe it goes back to being centered onto the boat because it is essential that you are looking at the boat and at some kind of appropriate zoomed in level. Um, what I had done, I'd been checking out some detail the boat had then driven off the side of the electronic chart and without noticing and looking, I'd been down below for a little while. You know, once you're doing 16, 20 knots, um, you only need to be and a commission looking at a few things, uh, get your head into a little bit of a job that you're trying to solve, uh, read an email, do a few things and 40, 50 minutes can pass very, very quickly. And when I did look at back at the chart plotter, um, and I've only got, you know, tiredness and, 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 and sleep deprivation to, to blame for this. When I look back at the chart plotter, press the button to center it on, there was an island 1.6 miles ahead. I believe it's called uh, Pyramid, Pyramid Rock, I think it's called, uh, Pyramid Island or something. Um, it was uh, directly in front of me. And um, yeah, I was doing 16 knots. So 1.6 miles, 16 knots, uh, it would have come to a bang and a crash very very quickly and you know unfortunately that's what um that's what experience is right it's making lots of mistakes and then realizing never to make that a mistake again because some mistakes you you know you scratch the car a little bit or you you know <laughs> trap your finger in a door and some of them you crash your open 60 onto an island in the middle of nowhere um thank god it didn't come to anything like that um i did have my head enough around me to to be checking relatively uh, but relatively regularly, but I'd been in the open ocean for three weeks, you know, um, we're probably only seven or eight days from the end of the leg. It was a 40 day leg. So yeah, so I spent a month at sea doing offshore nav and 
hadn't learned at that point to really physically take control of the situation and change gears in a very um, thought out way so that as I got closer to land, I changed to my inshore method. And I, I do that very consciously now because offshore, there's not much point having a life jacket on when you're solo. Now I do clip onto the boat. I do have a waist uh, belt, which has an extended clip on it, and I'm all the time clipped onto the boat. Um, I do have my harness on for when I go up the rig. I've got full body harness for, for maintenance jobs, longer maintenance jobs up the rig. I have all sorts of harnessing. I'm always connected to the boat, but a life jacket per se, that inflatable part, is not much use to a solo sailor because unless you're in a very dense fleet of boats, like if you're doing mini transit work or something like that, and you've got an AIS on the life jacket, which, by the way, was not possible at 2011, we're talking about, um, you're just bobbing around watching the stern light of the boat disappear into the darkness as you uh, begin to die. So uh, I had no interest in wearing a life jacket, but I had my belt on. What I now do is when I come in from offshore work and I get over the continental plateau, I start to think about the fact, okay, I'm only 200 miles from shore now, helicopter could get to me, there's a lot more shipping traffic here, these days, my AIS in my life jacket is going to be meaningful. My um, PLB in my life jacket, my personal locator beacon, that's going to be useful. I normally have a v little VHF, little Cobra VHF I have. I pop that in my pocket and I put my life jacket on and I get into my inshore mode. And if you've watched any of the Mariner videos on YouTube, um, there's one of them called, I think, like Sailing Home or something. I think it's the second to last one. I'm coming in and I'm getting closer to land and I discuss this the fact that I've gone into my inshore rig and I do that so that I physically start to think about traffic and I physically start to think about different style of navigation and the things that go with that um, and getting your papers ready and getting your ship in order and all the other stuff which becomes part of your life as you get closer to shore but I do it very physically now because of this experience of um, you know, nearly crashing into this island. So into Bass Strait I went and uh, shot through there. But I had a bit of a decision to make because, you know, I, I the other boats were virtually in by this point. They're approaching Wellington, all of them, I think, having gone round the south of the South Island and cut up into uh, the strait there and gone to Wellington. Um, I know Brav and Lou had already been in. I was still in the Bass Strait and it's like 700 miles across the Tasman Sea to New Zealand. And I only had a very small amount of food left on board because it had taken longer than I expected to do this leg. Some learning there. I only had a very small amount of fuel on board. I think I because I'd had to be running the engine so much extra when it was um, down south and in the cold and, and hardly any solar. So as I stepped off into the Tasman Sea, there was a real decision of like, do I want to do this? Is this is this smart? Now, I didn't want to stop. I wanted to do each leg point to point. So there's some pride and ego in there. If there had been anybody with me, I definitely would have gone into Hobart, which um, I could actually see, you know, um, Tasmania to the south of me. I would have gone in, just don't worry about the, the race, make it safe. But again, because it's me and I'm on my own, I make my own decisions for myself. Um, and my own safety is the only thing that's... Um, uh, damaged by by my decisions I made the decision to step off into the Tasman Sea and I had a very good crossing and obviously if you're on a boat that can do 300 miles a day um, it doesn't take too long to to do something like that I think it did literally take me two or three days or something to get across I, I can't remember the exact situation but it was pretty much a straight run but as I got closer to New Zealand uh, I could virtually see New Zealand like I think I could just about see the shadow on the on the on the uh, horizon 
and then a high pressure system which I've been trying to stay ahead of overtook me and I ended up once again like slatting sails, reflective water, uh, just nothing and I could see on the chart what was coming next <laughs> and of course what comes in behind a really flat period, uh, loads of wind and so as I stuck my nose into the um, Cook Strait, just between um, New Zealand and, uh, uh, rather North Island and South Island, New Zealand, the wind came in and it came in hard. And it came in like from, because it was the front edge of this thing, it came in like from the south. I'm actually trying to hook from the northwest to the southeast as you cut through Cook Strait. And you've also got a lot of tide runs through there. So I ended up just having this nightmare time with either I've got five knots of tide and 40 knots against me, or I've got five knots of tide with me, and now the tide's against the wind. <laughs> so I spent like, I don't know, like I, I think it was like 36 hours or something, just beating and beating and beating up with these like square waves. At least we're out of the Southern Ocean's waves, but now we're into the short chop created by new breeze in a shallow, narrow uh, section of land and just beating and beating and beating. And again, online, um, if you look up Chris Stanwell Major and Cook Straight, you'll see a video which I did there um, for the for the media arm of the Velux race. And uh, it's it's me beating upwind in just hideous, hideous seas. Um, if you're watching it, bear in mind what I've said. If that's like the last two days, I've been 38 days at sea and all this stuff had happened in the Southern Ocean that we've been discussing. I was tired, <laughs> very tired. Um, but finally, as always happens, um, the, the wind started to drop and finally visibility improved from a half a mile. And I actually discovered that I was only about, well, I knew on the chart, but I suddenly could see I was like 50 miles from the entrance to the port in Wellington. It was going into the evening and uh, I called ahead to the race uh, authority and um, the race organizers. And they uh, said, well, look, there's, there's no point in coming in tonight because you're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to come out and meet you and we're going to have to bring the boat in late at night. It's not going to affect your position. You're fourth. The guy that was in fifth, Christoph Bullens, unfortunately, has pulled out of the race so and gone back to Cape Town. So you're in fourth. Nothing's going to change. Just take the night and, uh, you know, and hang out. So uh, I had basically no food to eat. I had two liters of diesel left. That was all <laughs> That's all I had, two or three liters, um, like just literally what was left in the bottom of a couple of cans. Um, but you know what? It was awesome. As the, as the visibility improved and we just went into the evening, I could see the land around me. I could see the lights of New Zealand, somewhere I'd never been before. I'd crossed successfully from Cape Town through the Southern Ocean. I'd learned so much. I'd had some highs and lows. I'd learned yet more about myself and my own psychology and dealing with being on my own and, 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 and the importance of putting as much energy in as you can to get as much out as you require to keep going. Um, I'd gotten through this thing with the diesel engine. I'd managed to negate the issue of the batteries going knackered. I got across the Tasman Sea on hardly any food and hardly any diesel and I'd arrived in New Zealand. And I have to say, it's one of the nicest evening sails I ever had. I just put the boat on autopilot, basically hove to, um, stuck the autopilot so it's over on one side, just pinned in position. And we just um, lay lay to the wind and, and lay to the, the, the little bit of swell that was there and just bobbed around for the night until uh, the next morning the sun came up. And then um, 
uh, Alan Nebauer and my man Aston, who'd flown down to uh, New Zealand, they came out as I went through the finish line and jumped on board and helped sail the boat in and everything. And uh, as I went in, there was lots of people on the dock and uh, and I had my... Uh, I'd had a shave, uh, put some new clothes on, I'd kept to one side, and I got off looking like I'd uh, <laughs> just stepped out of the salon. But obviously, that was the uh, 40 days in the Southern Ocean. I had learned a lot about uh, what it takes to make a, a serious transit um, south of 40 degrees. So I hope some of that's been useful. Um, I don't mind to to talk through this stuff. I hope there's value for you on the other side listening in and uh, and pulling things out of it. You know, it's not just the Southern Ocean. A lot of this uh, does apply to pretty much every ocean passage. You know, coming from ocean open ocean navigation to nearshore navigation is a big change you have to be aware of. The psychology of keeping buoyant, um, looking at uh, problems and thinking on a boat, it's probably the environment or a user uh, interaction which has created these things a lot of it is appropriate but just that extra element of the southern ocean what it represents to be that far offshore what it represents to be in that bigger seas created by the geography of this ocean that exists at the bottom of our world it's uh, it's something else and uh, you know we are actually starting to move towards doing the global ocean race in 2023 i think going into the southern ocean is something the clipper race goes close to the southern ocean it's kind of uh your southern the southern ocean is on your right hand side as you as you go from cape town to geraldton but clearly you're not going that far south if you're going to western australia you don't need to dip that far low and i think um you know they've they've given people a very good opportunity to learn what it's like down there see bigger open ocean but um if you've seen footage of that if you've seen footage of um of people doing the clipper race or stuff at about 40 44 degrees south um as you go further south it just gets bigger and bigger and the risks get larger and larger and the skill set to keep it all managed needs to be developed um as we go forward now into the next uh, episode of this i'll be describing going from New Zealand around Cape Horn and up to Uruguay and that's you know right across the the Pacific I ended up ripping my mainsail and having to sew it back together in the middle of the ocean ended up at the back of the fleet again but this time something broke something changed and I decided I was not going to be at the back anymore and I actually ended up driving back into the fleet and even getting up to second place just before the finish of the race into Uruguay so uh, a big change for me as I finally get to grips with the boat get to grips with the open 60 in the southern ocean and drive south around the horn um, and I can tell you right now uh, it was very very close to me whether I was going to get into a massive pickle at Cape Horn as a 45 knot storm was coming in from the west um, promising new swell huge stress massive risk for me on the plateau um, if you want to hear about that then you're going to have to listen to the next one, right? <laughs> it's a cliffhanger. So I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, any questions? People now are starting to send some questions to me, ideas for future podcasts. It's not just about open 60s. Anything that happens on the water is of great interest to me. I do uh, cruise. We have a little cruising boat. I've done smaller keelboat work, although I don't know much about dinghies. I'd love to learn more about that. Um, high latitude sailing. Um worked on tall ships worked on classic yachts um questions about seamanship questions about running crews i've got some questions i want to address now about watch systems and organizing that um right down to little bits of rope work and details if you've got any questions send them in it makes it more interesting if i'm um 
talking to you about things that you know make sense in 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 the wider world of sailing i can only describe off the top of my head the things that have happened to me but if this becomes a two-way street then um hopefully it becomes more useful and more educational for everybody but um until the next episode that's all from me chris Dower major the mariner i hope you enjoyed it and i look forward to being on watch with you next time cheers <laughs>